Let us pray for the reading of God's word. Father, my soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? In your steadfast love, you give me life that I might keep the testimonies of your mouth. Father, we pray this morning that you would unstop our ears, that we would hear your word, that you would open our eyes, that we might see you gloriously revealed through your word. We ask that you would work it into our lives as we have need for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we continue our series in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll be looking at verses 17 to 24. This is the word of God. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain remain with God. The word of the Lord. And pray for the preaching. Father, as my words are true to your word, may they be taken to heart. But if my words should stray from your word, may they be quickly forgotten. I pray this in the name and in the power of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, it seems to me like every week I have the opportunity to update my apps. There's always bugs to fix. There's always some new feature. It's usually some new way advertised is a great way for me to enhance or to move to the next level of my computing experience, uh, to find enjoyment and efficiency. Never mind, I'm still trying to figure out how to use all the old features. Here comes the new. And with apps, this push for new and improved is essentially harmless, albeit annoying. But if we allow this same obsession, the same constant obsession with new and improved to seep into other areas of our lives, it would be disastrous to our Christian life and growth, and more importantly, dangerous to our identity in Christ. And Paul has a remedy for this temptation, and that's the theme of our text this morning. He will argue that because God has redeemed us, Because God has changed us, we must and really can rest in him. Because God is a good God, we can trust that he has the best plans for us. In other words, because God has given us a new status, we must rest in his 
calling. Paul will effectively encourage us to stay unless because. That is, he will challenge us to consider staying in our current situation unless a few key considerations are met because of some overarching principle that applies. He's been using this approach already, and we saw it even last week. If you have your Bible open, you may want to turn back with me to verses 12 and following of chapter 7. You may remember the argument. If your unbelieving spouse consents to live with you, you should not divorce them. That's the stay part of this argument. But if they separate, let it be so. You are not unslaved. That's the unless. For how do you know, husband or wife, whether you will save them? That's the because. This language of stay unless because it was presented by Dr. Dan Doriani in his book, Work That Makes a Difference, that 20 or so of the men of this church study on Wednesday mornings. You're invited to come at 6.30 He demonstrated that the strategy using several passages from Scripture, including 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And I think it accurately describes Paul's strategy in dealing with many of the issues of the Corinthian church. Paul launches straight into his argument in verse 17, and then he demonstrates it, or rather applies it, into two contextually current issues in his day that being the debate over circumcision and the stigma of slavery. And I'll admit that while neither of these are pressing issues in the same way for us here in Kalispell in 2022, there are considerations, our principles for both our consideration and our application. If we look at verse 17, and the parallel principle that he restates again in verse 20 and 24, we can summarize those three verses as stay. Stay. There is no need for change. Paul here is addressing the natural propensity that we have to improve ourselves and to improve our situations. And of course, most of the time, this is a perfectly excellent characteristic of mankind. We see something and we desire to improve upon it. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But what was happening in the newly formed church was that individual members were feeling the pressure to improve their standing or their status within the church and more dangerously with God. It seems that there there was this idea that one's spiritual status was connected with some other thing, some circumstance. For example, one's marital status. Uh, We saw that in the passage which just come. And Paul cuts against this by reminding his audience, for instance, in verse 15, that God has called them to peace. So in the previous section, Paul was making the point that even if your unbelieving spouse leaves you, It doesn't diminish your standing with God. Your marital status is inconsequential to your spiritual standing with God. 
Paul will actually move back to that same idea, making a similar point, but from the perspective of the single one in verses 25 to 38. But here in our text today, he breaks away from marital status and speaks about two other areas, which I've mentioned, in which the Corinthian Christians seem to consider as affecting their status with God, circumcision and slavery. In both of these areas, New Testament scholar Gordon Fee notes that they had this idea that the I could improve, like I could improve my status by changing my circumstance. They felt that circumcised believers were seen as more spiritual. Freedmen were seen as more pleasing to God. And Paul is very direct in verse 17. He commands Let each person lead the life that the Lord assigned to him to which God has called him. The term here translated as called includes in its lexical range invite or summon. And Paul is pointing to a marker in time, uh, that time in which the gospel came in and invited and summoned and called you into a saving relationship with the Lord that time in which you recognize that you were a sinner in need of his grace, that time in which you confessed your sin and you asked for his forgiveness in and only through the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the time of your calling. That's the moment for consideration in verses 17, 20, and 24. When you were called by God into relationship with himself, And at that point, your status is fixed. You are a child of God, and so there is no need to change. Paul goes on, he says, that this is my rule in all the churches. And in this, we are reminded of the universal aspect of the Christian church. There's a real expectation that Paul had that his letters would be read in Corinth and then passed on to other churches. There was a similar expectation that each of these churches, whether planted by Paul or Barnabas, Peter or John, they would share both in their theology as well as in their essential practices. Regarding this phrase, all the churches, New Testament scholar Thistleton reminds us that the church is holy, apostolic, and one. He writes, quote, the contextual has a place but only within the framework of certain universal characteristics of what it means to have a Christian identity and what it means to be a Christian church, end quote. It's common practice these days to dismiss texts that would prove inconvenient to us personally or socially unpalatable as merely cultural. Uh, We choose rather to relegate those texts to certain regions or certain time frames. But Paul won't have any of that regional or, to quote another, chronological snobbery. These rules, this principle applies to all the churches. And first, he applies this rule to circumcision. Note verse 18. Were you already circumcised? Don't seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Were you uncircumcised? Don't seek circumcision. There is no need for change, Paul is saying. 
Here, the New Testament scholar Thomas Schreiner notes that Paul, the Pharisee, makes a statement that is, quote, nothing short of astonishing. Paul essentially states in verse 19 that circumcision is nothing. What God cares about is keeping the commandments. Of course, as a part of that audience in Corinth, the Jewish part of that audience would have heard that with ears trained by the Old Testament teachings. Circumcision is nothing. What God cares about is keeping the commandments. They would rightly wonder, didn't God command Abraham all the way back in Genesis 17 that every male among you should be circumcised throughout all the generations? Was not the male born in the house, whether slave or free, to be circumcised on the eighth day? Was not Jesus himself, our Savior, circumcised on the eighth day? And now Paul says, it's nothing. You're curious about why Paul has said it's nothing. He explains his theological reasoning in Romans chapter 2, verses 25 and following, Romans chapter 4 in verses 9 and following. It's the point he's making is that circumcision has always simply been a sign that one has been set apart, marked by God as God's own. God has always been concerned with the heart of a person. Ever since the beginning, in fact, even in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 6, Uh, 16, we read this, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. And thankfully then, as now, God helps us. Deuteronomy also speaks of, in verse uh, chapter 30, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul that you may live. Later on, Paul also makes quite clear in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, that this sign of that promise, that declaration, that being a child of God is now better represented in baptism. In baptism, we see a picture that the covenant has opened up. It's not just a sign applied to men, to the males, to the boys. But now the daughters of the king can take the sign and the seal of the covenant as well. This idea of circumcision, the idea uh, that it's necessary for one's heightened spiritual condition, that permeated the early church. In fact, Paul is regularly writing to correct the errors in the early church. You can find it in Romans, in 1 Corinthians, in Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, and even in his instructions to the young pastor Titus. And he says, there is no need to change your status. You are completely accepted in Christ, whatever your ethnicity, Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised. Stay. Paul also writes to bondservants or slaves in verse 21. And he prefaces that section with a reminder of that same principle in verse 20. Each of you should remain in the condition in which he was called. And then he writes to slaves. He writes, were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. 
that's a statement that I think is nothing short of astonishing. I appreciated the theologian Gordon Fee's observation here. He notes, Paul's pretty relaxed about this. And then he says, quote, It's hard to imagine that this was received by all his readers in the same relaxed way. Were you a slave when called? Don't worry about it. It's hard to realize that until you understand the point that Paul was trying to make. You need not be anxious or concerned about your slavery because God has accepted you. You are the Lord's. I'll make this point again in a moment, but note Paul's principle. We are to remain in the condition in which we are called, in which we are called. That's the focus here. Slaves are called. That would have been astounding, that slaves would have been in some measure of equality and parity in that congregation, hearing this word read, that they were called and they were loved by God, and slaves had their sins forgiven by God, Christ bled and died to save slaves. And they are free from the bondage of their sins. And therefore, there is no need to change their circumstances to be loved anymore by their heavenly Father. So there's no need for change. And yet, you may have noticed that everything has changed. As we've been working our way through 1 Corinthians, we're reminded of that change. The wisdom of God is seen as the foolishness of men. And being a fool in man's eyes is being shown as wise in the Lord. In chapter 4, there's a wordplay with darkness and light and how God brings change there. And now in our text, we see that Christ has turned things upside down as well. For instance, for thousands of years, God had commanded circumcision, but no longer. And now Paul writes to those enslaved. He writes, a bondservant, a slave, is a freedman in the Lord. What a thing to say to a slave. But notice what else Paul says to them in verse 21. It's right after he tells them not to be concerned about their condition of slavery. Then he says, but if you can gain your freedom, Avail yourself of the opportunity. Stay unless you can leave as free. Now, this is the unless section of our sermon title. Because God has changed everything, we don't have to stay as is. And again, this has nothing to do with our status before God. It has nothing to do with our acceptance by God. And therefore, it ought to have nothing to do with our acceptance by mankind. Of course, sin gets in the way of that. But Paul recognizes that at times we're unable to stay in our condition, as is the case if your spouse deserts you. You're unable to stay married. And there are times in which we've seen it may be unwise to stay, as in the case of abusive relationships. And here there are times that Paul tells us it is truly superior to leave, as would be the case in slavery. If you can attain your freedom, take that opportunity. There were several ways in which a person might find themselves as a slave in the first century. First, 
There were those that were slaves because they were captives of war. There were those who were slaves because they were born to slaves and therefore became a slave themselves. But there were also slaves who chose to sell themselves into slavery for some reason, most commonly to pay off a family debt. And in those cases, those slaves, bond servants, if they were ever able to procure the necessary funds, could purchase their freedom again. In fact, some masters would share with slaves, all their slaves, the prices of their freedom. And they could purchase them if they found the funds. For many modern and Western readers, beset with a sense of helpless guilt as we recall our own nation's historical involvement with slavery, we might find ourselves frustrated with Paul for not saying more against slavery. And to that I say we need to remember that Paul was dealing with a particular issue that those who were free were considering themselves as spiritually superior to those who were slaves. And on that issue, Paul is very direct, quite bold, and he flips the narrative on them. He says, stay in your condition as slaves unless you can gain your freedom because in Christ you are already a freed man. And then notice what he says to the free ones. He says, in Christ you are a slave. In Christ you are the bond servants. No, notice what else Paul says. Not only does he encourage them to gain their freedom if they can, but he reminds us all that we were bought with a price. We are not our own. That's the story there. Here Paul is echoing himself as in, in verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 20, where he says, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. There, that truth was to impact and affect the way we handled ourselves with respect to our sexuality. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So obey the Lord and glorify him with your body. And here he's reminding us again that you have been bought with a price that is the blood of Jesus. And since he bought us, we are his. We are not our own. And Paul says, don't therefore come a bondservant again. Slavery was never a part of God's design. It's simply the result of selfish and powerful men who imposed their wills on those without power. Slavery has been a plague on society for thousands of years, and it still continues. In fact, right now in Africa alone, a recent study showed that there are an estimated 9.2 million men, women, and children that are slaves in Africa. A worldwide estimate is over 20 million. The supermajority of slaves are Africa, uh, in Africa, Asia, and Indonesia. This is not simply a first world problem. And it is true that slavery may have been a little different in Paul's days. That there were bond servants who were doctors and lawyers and other highly educated individuals who served a particular family in those capacities. It may have been different, but it was still bondage. And Paul is asking them, do not sell yourself back into slavery. This is a principle that has a much larger application. You may find that you have the opportunity to combat slavery itself 
but even if you can't, you can apply the idea of not allowing yourself to become a bondservant. You can apply that principle to really any endeavor that would rule over us. As I was thinking about this in my own life, it's possible that I sold myself into a time of indebtedness when I entered the military simultaneously as both an officer and a chaplain. Both jobs in and of themselves were black holes that wanted to just suck more and more of our time. But to combine them together, it's no wonder that Susan often felt neglected. She was. I had sold myself to God and country, and these aren't bad things in and of themselves. There were great opportunities, and it was an honor to serve both the nation and the king of kings as a chaplain. I just simply failed to set boundaries, to avail myself of the opportunities to be free and to care for my family, to care for the church from time to time. We can all fall into workaholism. We can fall and find ourselves in bondage to crushing debt or addictions or other bondages that would strip us of our freedom. And to these circumstances, Paul would join his voice to the writer of Hebrews and say, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before us. There is real slavery, and if you have the chance to combat it, do. And there are ways in which we subject ourselves to things that would rule over us. And Paul says, don't do that. This principle of stay unless, because, is a little harder to see in Paul's first example of circumcision, because he doesn't specifically address here that issue and when someone might want to consider circumcision. Elsewhere, though, in Acts chapter 16, we see it worked out. Paul notes that he wants to bring Timothy on one of his early missionary journeys. And he says that because the Jews who were in those places, they all knew that his father was a Greek, he had Timothy circumcised. Timothy was uh, the son of a Jewish mother and a Greek father. And Paul's compelling drive here is to bring the gospel to the Jews. And he knew that an uncircumcised Timothy would be a distraction. It would be confusing to the Jewish audience. And so the principle here that Paul would have would be stay uncircumcised unless you can better communicate the gospel as circumcised. Because... While it doesn't matter to God, it may be a help. It may be a hindrance to your audience. The beautiful point here that Paul is making is that all of those decisions are made with the church in mind, with the gospel in mind, with following God's commands to missions work and to grow the church and to serve the church and one another within the church. And most of us today focus our decisions on ourselves. New Testament scholar Thistleton, he writes this. Do we consider future careers or jobs in terms of what God calls us to do for him? Or in terms of what we think we shall find fulfilling or satisfying? I remember a friend telling me when he was looking for a job that he and his wife picked several good churches in areas. And he only looked for jobs in those towns. 
For them, church was more important than the job. The Christian community was more important. At the time, it seemed novel, impressive, actually, extraordinary, but a little bit over the top. But the more I think about it, the more I realize that my friend got it right. The church ought to be the most important thing in our life. And unless we're committed to church planting, finding a church ought to be the starting point. To love the church more than worldly comfort. To long to be in worship. To long for fellowship with fellow brothers and sisters. Most of us, however, are plagued by a desire to simply improve our circumstances. We think, if I only had a better job, If I only had more friends, if I only had a more understanding spouse or a better boss or a newer car, or maybe some of us have thought, if I only purchased that piece of land a few years ago, if only, if only, if only. And to you, God says, stay right where you are. Remember, what ought to be the most important thing to you is your status with me, your Father. And you are completely accepted in Christ. In the changing of our perspective, Gordon Fee writes this, The call to Christ has changed, has created such a change in one's essential relationship, that is, our relationship with God, that one does not need to seek changes in other relationships that is, with people. You are as loved by God as you can be. So don't worry too much about your circumstances. God can and will use them all for his glory. Focus rather on Christ, serve the church, and grow in your love for Jesus. And so, with respect to your certain, your current circumstance, stay unless, because. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your great love in our lives. You truly love us with the love you have for your Son. Father, you did not withhold even your Son for us. Father, there's no way we can improve upon that. And yet we try. We regularly think that if we behave better, if we do more stuff, that somehow you'll like us more. Tricks and techniques that many of us use with other relationships. But Father, with you, let us rest in your unconditional love. Let us remember that when you see us, you see your son Christ Jesus and his righteousness. Father, let us rest content in your once-applied status as children of God because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for the freedom that you have given to us to live, to think, to act for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.